Hello, and welcome to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast, recorded live weekly at our campus in Scottsdale, Arizona, during our normal service. Good morning again. My name is John Chubb, and I'm happy to be preaching with you all this morning. Um, I think you all know this. I love movies. I love talking about movies. Um, I especially enjoy movies that have like a twist at the end, uh, where there's some sort of big reveal. You know, the person you thought was the good guy. Oh, it turns out they're the bad guy, or you just you know whatever that twist may be is the common thing that that's in movies. Um, and often you go into a movie, um, you know that you're going to be surprised at the end um, if already if someone hasn't already spoiled the ending for you. So this is just. Don't spoil movies, guys. Don't, 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 don't do that. Uh, but some movies take it even a step further, and they'll actually have a twist uh, maybe towards the beginning of the film. And those are especially like fun movies to watch, where you think the movie is going one way, and like 20 minutes into it, you're like, oh, like this is completely not what I thought I was getting myself into. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is the 1960 classic uh, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, the movie Psycho. Um, there's a very, uh, there's, that movie kind of has all kinds of twists and turns. Um, the movie did come out about 60 years ago, so I'm going to assume most of us have seen the film, or at least you're aware that there's a movie called that, and you're aware of Norman Bates and things like that. You probably, if you've never seen it, you're kind of aware, like, oh, I can picture that in my head. Um, but yeah, if you've seen it, you know the movie takes a lot of twists and turns. And overall, for the original audience, it was a very, very shocking movie. Like they were like, this, nothing had like ever come out like this before. Um, but one thing in particular, one of the many things that was unusual or unique about this film was that uh, the main character played by Janet Lee, she basically dies at the beginning of the film. About 20 minutes into the film, her character uh, tragically dies. And for the original audience, they were not expecting that, that to happen. They see her name on the marquee, they see like, oh, she's the star of the film, she's gonna be in this entire thing. And when her character dies off at the beginning, oh, oh my goodness, like again, that sets the stage for like, this is going to like not go the way I was, I was thinking it was going to go. Um, I bring this all up. I love to try to make these connections here. I bring this all up because we're still in John's gospel this morning. Uh, we're looking at the healing miracles of Jesus, and we're going to look at the story of the man who was, um, who was born blind and his healing. And the first quarter or so of the story, it basically plays like a, like a drama. It kind of plays very serious, like this man is healed. And then as more characters are introduced into the story and as, as more things happen, it almost takes like a comedic turn. It almost like turns into a comedy. So there's this um, amazing healing miracle uh, followed by a bunch of action and dialogue that's comedic in nature. There's almost like a tone switch that happens after the miracle. And so we're going to explore that to, to, uh, together this morning. So as always, we begin in prayer. I invite you to pray with me now. Uh, Lord, we are thankful uh, for your word. We are thankful for the truth of your word lived out in the word made flesh in Christ. Uh, we're thankful for the truth of that word throughout the ages, and we're thankful uh, for the truth of that word for us even now here today. Lord, I pray that I'd be uh, able to preach and proclaim your truth this morning. If I say anything that's not of you, let that be forgotten. Uh, but we pray that you'd be brought glory and honor and that we'd learn to better be your disciples as a result. Amen. All right, so our story starts off, and we're in verse 1, and the disciples come across a man who was blind from birth. 
And the disciples then, they asked Jesus a very interesting question, a very deep question. Uh, why is this man blind? Who was responsible for his blindness? Um, and that question, it betrays their belief, very common in that day, that our suffering was the result of, of sin. And so in their brains, in their minds, was the idea that um, suffering is caused by maybe an individual sin, um, or maybe your children were suffering because of something that you did. Um, and that's, a, that's an interesting idea. And really, uh, again, we talk about that being a, a first century thing, but that, that, that idea is still around. That idea is still permeating, permeating our culture even today in many Christian circles. Uh, there's still very much an undercurrent that exists that, like, if bad things happen to you, if bad things are happening in the world, you know, like... Maybe you deserved it for some sort of reason. Uh, take your pick of like whatever, you know, t- a TV preacher, televangelist, whatever that you, uh, you can pick. Like when they, like there's a natural disaster or something terrible happens and they're, you know, blaming this, that, and then everyone else for whatever is going on in the world. Uh, so there's that like kind of like high level thing down to just even on a personal level. Maybe that's something that we uh, grapple with and deal with as well. Like there's something bad happening to us and we're like, what, what did I do to deserve this? So I need to repent or something like that. Um, but today's sermon is not a sermon about suffering. So we'll kind of, we'll table that conversation for now. Uh, maybe that's something that we'll talk about at a later date. Uh, but Jesus though, he answers this question and says that the man's blindness was not a result of his sin. Um, And so he does something very interesting next. Uh, What Jesus does is a very non-COVID-approved action. That is what is about to follow. Even even pre-COVID, reading this miracle, we're like, okay, that was a little little unusual. Uh, But especially in a post-COVID world, we're like, that's that's especially weird. I don't know if I would have done that. Um, What Jesus does is he spits on the ground, makes some mud with saliva, and then he puts it over the blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Amazing. There's a healing miracle. Uh, Jesus healing physical ailments. That's very much a common theme that we see in the miracles. And blindness was one of the major ones that we see in the Gospels. There's a few stories of people receiving uh, sight and just kind of general references uh, to that as well. And if we ended our story here, if we kind of stopped talking about like the miracle here, like a guy receives his sight, you know, there's certainly things we could talk about, certainly implications uh, that we could uh, draw forth from that. There's always a lot we can say about different miracles. Um, but as we continue with our story, again, this is there, there's almost a change of pace and a change of tone with how the rest of the story plays out. So again, the story goes from this nice healing miracle uh, to almost this comedic play involving these ridiculous over-the-top moments that cause us, the audience, to almost kind of like want to laugh at what's going on. So it goes from serious to like almost ridiculous. It goes from a a drama to a comedy. This is the moment where Janet Leigh is no longer in the film. All right, so thus far, it's Jesus, the disciples, and the former blind man. Uh, But now, uh, we're introduced to his neighbors and his parents and the religious leaders, and things start to take a turn. Uh, Because his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar ask each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. Uh, But the, the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they call Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. 
And so his neighbors, those that have known him only as a blind man, they discover that now he can see. And they begin to have this debate. Some think it's like, some, they say it's him, and others are like, no, it's only an imposter. It's not, not really him. It just only looks like him. And he chimes in. He says, yeah, it's, it's me. Like, you guys are talking about me. Like, no, this is me. Like, yeah, I can see now. And they still don't believe him. Like, that's funny, that's ridiculous, that's comical. He has to defend the self that, like, it is him. He's not an imposter, not some doppelganger. There's not some weird twin brother situation. Like, it's still the same person. Um, And our story progresses, and we find out that this miracle has happened on the Sabbath. Another super common theme we see in the Gospels. Jesus does a miracle on the Sabbath day, and now the Pharisees have to get involved. The religious nerds have to get involved. They get all riled up. Uh, You don't work on the Sabbath, you don't heal, you don't make mud, you don't go and wash your face. These are all forms of work. You have to avoid these things at all costs. So there's multiple forms of work that are involved in this miracle. And so the disciples are, or the Pharisees are having a debate. This man, Jesus, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep uh, division of opinion among them. And so some are thinking that this is the worst thing that has ever happened, while others are like, well, wait a second, like, he can't be that bad if he restored someone's vision. And so now the Pharisees begin their investigation. They question the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? And the man replied, I think he must be a prophet. And I think at this point, the man's starting to get a little bit annoyed because he's already had to defend his identity with those that have known him his whole life. And now the religious leaders, those with the importance, you know, they want to know what's happened there. They start to put him on trial as well. And so now twice he's had to explain what's happened. His whole life has just radically shifted for the better. And everyone's like jumping down his throat. No one seems to be happy for him in the story just yet. And it gets worse because now they bring his parents into the situation. Uh, The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been born blind who could now see, so they called in his parents. And they asked him, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? And his parents replied, we know this is our son, and that he was born blind. But we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He is old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he is old enough, ask him. And again, this is a bit comedic. He's a fully grown man, and yet they call on his parents to speak to him, to speak about the matter. Uh, and they're, not put, they're, they're put in a difficult position uh, with this because, um, you know, we're not told this, but I am going to assume that they're pretty ecstatic that their son has now been healed, that their son can now see. Um, I can only imagine how difficult it would be to raise a child in that day and age, you know, with all the diseases and problems that they had as a society that we don't have anymore. Um, just making it past infancy, that was a big enough deal as it was. They had a very high infant mortality rate. Uh, that, though, coupled with the fact that he was blind. Like, that must have been a tr- tremendously difficult for them. Um, they didn't have, you know, Braille and schools for the blind and seeing eye dogs and protective laws and, like, all that stuff that we have now. Um, and I remember, uh, the, remember that question that the disciples asked at the beginning of the story. Like, is this guy blind because he sinned or maybe his parents sinned? 
And so his parents may have well been under the impression that they somehow caused their son's blindness. There may have been some guilt issues. Even if they didn't think that, certainly there would have been those in the community that would have been like, mm, what did they do? Because their son is suffering for their sins. You know? So there's like probably some guilt and some shame with that. Their son has had to spend his life begging. Now his sight has been restored. He can be normal and a productive member of society. Like that's amazing. That's cause for celebration. But they feel kind of stuck. You know, they were not involved in this miracle. They probably don't know Jesus personally, but they know he's responsible for the healing. But they can't say anything positive about it because they might get kicked out of the synagogue. And if that happened, there would be a huge loss in their own identity. Like that's like, like most of their life is tied up with being in the synagogue and they're like, they're a threat of being kicked out from that. And so they're dealing with a very unfortunate catch-22 situation. They're trapped and they didn't even have anything to do with it in, in, in the first place. They're kind of like drug in and like they don't want to be there. Uh, they risk excommunication from the community if they say the wrong thing. And yet their son has been healed. Like, of course they want to celebrate that. And so they end up passing the buck to their son. They say, he's of age, he's a legal adult, he can speak for himself, which also is true. He's a grown man. Like, they don't need to be involved in this situation. It'd be like, if, my, if you called my parents and were at, like, said, like, hey, fill out this pastor report or whatever. Like, they don't go here. Like, they're, they're not involved in that, you know, kind of a thing. Um, but so the religious leaders then bring him in again. And at this point, the man is just like, getting more and more exasperated. They have this back and forth conversation, which turns more into a, a, a debate. And again, like I think we can just see the comedic tone, just the ridiculousness of just how this, how this all plays out. So for the second time, they call in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know that this Jesus man is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this, I was blind and now I see. But what did, they, what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to heal, hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. And so they keep asking him the same questions, thinking like, okay, they're gonna, we're finally going to get the answer that we're looking for. And the best line in this entire encounter is verse 27. Like, this is like, oh man, they do not like this line. Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Don't you want to hear it again? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Like, that is the ultimate insult for them. You know, from his perspective, like, uh, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Like, why do you keep bringing this guy up? Why are you so interested in what happened? Why aren't you believing me? Like, you're, you're kind of obsessed with this Jesus guy here. Like, it's almost like you want to follow him. Like, right? Isn't that what's going on here? And so, again, that's the ultimate burn for them. That's, like, just beyond insulting. How could you dare say that about, uh, to us? And so, 
This innocent man, who up until very recently was basically on the bottom rung of society, is now thrown out of the synagogue. He just got his life back, and now with being rejected from this, like, what's he going to do? Where is he going to go? And Jesus ends up finding him, and they have a conversation. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think that they, that they see that they are blind. Some of the Pharisees who were standing nearby him heard him and asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. And so this man uh, ends up coming to faith in Jesus. He ends up worshiping him. And at the the heart of the symbolism behind this miracle is that statement in verse 39, that he has come to give sight to the blind and those who think they can see are really blind. And the religious leaders who are nearby, they chime in and say like, are you talking about us here? Who are you talking about? Are you referring to me here? And Jesus' response is basically, well, what do you think? If the shoe fits... And so there's this there's some beautiful irony in this story. You know, the man who can't see receives physical sight, and he ends up having this spiritual insight to who Jesus is. And the religious leaders, the ones who can physically see, who should have been on Jesus' side the whole time, they're the ones who are blind. And so I hope we can just appreciate the irony in this story, it's just kind of, as well as like the ridiculous comedy uh, that, G, that John is portraying with this miracle story. And of the six miracles that we've encountered in the gospel thus far, uh, this story has a remarkable uh, similarity with a previous healing story. There's actually a lot of similarities between this miracle and one that happens uh, before it. Um, In in John chapter 5, there's a a story involving an invalid man who's by a, a, a pool and suddenly he could walk. So there's kind of these healing miracles, and they actually have a lot of parallels uh, together. Uh, Because both stories involve a a, a man who's healed, and a pool is involved in the story. In in the first story, there's a man who kind of lives by a pool. And in this story, there's a man who's told to go to a pool and wash out his eyeballs. Um, They also share a similarity in that they have these lifelong disabilities. Both of them have been suffering them either from like their entire lives or from childhood or something like that. This is not a recent uh, disease. This is something they've had their entire life. Um, And also this miracle, both of them happen on the Sabbath and both of them upset the Pharisees. So both of these miracles share a lot of similarities, a lot of, a lot of common facts about them. And so these then set the stage for the reaction of the man who is going to be healed. How are they going to react to this miracle? Will they, will they react in the same way? And when we looked at the healing in John chapter 5 by the man by the pool, I presented this idea that this man who ends up being healed didn't actually want to be healed. I think he was comfortable with his lifestyle, begging for existence. And I think I read that story as a man who didn't want to be healed. And that's a weird reaction to have, like to have this lifelong disease or this illness and like to not want that. Uh, That is a little unusual. Um, And to the best of my knowledge, it's the only person in scripture who did not want to be healed. I did not look that up. I was writing my sermon and I forgot to fact check that. But I'm pretty sure if there, there aren't too many people in scripture that were healed and were upset about it. 
And when he's healed, instead of being excited about it, instead of thanking Jesus, instead of sticking up for, for him in front of the Pharisees, he ends up tattling on Jesus. He ends up getting him in trouble. And that stands in remarkable contrast with the man here in John chapter 9. Their, their reactions could not be more different, despite the other similarities in their stories, where he repeatedly goes to bat for Jesus, sticks out his neck for Jesus, um, and he won't back down from the accusations of the Pharisees. He, he, he's to spend his whole life begging. He's at the bottom of society. He probably can't read. He has no like, like education or anything like that. And yet he's putting all of their like hoity-toity knowledge just to absolute shame. He's blowing them away. And he's the last person that they would ever know to be able to do that. Like he puts them absolutely to shame. Uh, the man gets them so riled up, even with all of their religious training, even with all of their knowledge, they essentially have to resort to name calling and violence to get rid of, rid of him. That's what they, like these learned men result to name calling and violence to get rid of him. Like they, they act like children. And so I think that part of the reason John crafted this miracle story the way that he did was to show the juxtaposition of these two people and their reactions to Jesus. One is healed and wants nothing to do with him, uh, while the other is healed and worships him. And I think that for us, uh, the story, I think, invites us into it. And I think there's, when I read the story, I think, like, I want to see, like, okay, who are we in the story? What character are we embodying at any given moment? And I think you can make that claim for just about any story. I think, I think all of these stories in the Gospels and the, and the Bible, I think, are inviting us into it. But I think especially this story invites us into it because we see so many different people and so many different reactions, and we can be any one of them at any given time. And so I think that's where I'm kind of going uh, with this message. And that is to say um, that when we read the story of Jesus encountering different in individuals, you know, like, where are we in that spectrum? Where are we on that roster of folks? And so I think uh, that, that text is calling us to wrestle with that question. Like, who am I in this story? Um, the man who receives uh, healing, I think he's representative of a faith journey of someone who has encountered Jesus and just trying to figure out who exactly he is, what do I believe about him, and what, what kind of implications does this have for my life? It takes him some time to figure it all out, to put it all together. And even when he wasn't completely sure of like who Jesus was, he was still open to the idea of him. He was still defending him and is like at least saying, like, this is not a bad guy. Like he's kind of like figuring out like what he understands about Jesus, and he hasn't quite figured it all out, but it takes him some time, but eventually he gets there. And I think a lot of people, a lot of us are on journeys of faith. And anything we can do to just encourage that, to like spur one another on in that, is to be commended. Like we should, anyone who's open to faith, let's be encouraging dialogue and a continuation of that journey. Because often what happens is there's a tendency when we talk about faith, um, we often get on, like, go on the defense and maybe we, we were like quick to like uh, protect a culture or a set of beliefs from questions. A lot of times when we're dialoguing about faith, we get really protective about that. Um, or we go on the other, on the, on the opposite end of that, we try to go on the, the offense and we try to like shove faith at the front and center of every conversation, just kind of like shove it in people's faces. And I think to a degree, there's like a time and a place for both of these approaches, but maybe a better just ongoing practice and a better ongoing rhythm is just like be yourself and live out your faith and don't try to have some weird agenda or anything like that. You're like, it's okay to not have everything perfectly figured out. It's okay to get some things wrong along the way. Like, that's okay. And we don't always have to like shove a Bible verse into everything we think or do or whatever. 
And so I think that when, when we're dialoguing with people who are like interested in faith or on a faith journey, I think they're open more to like just you being real with them and saying like, I don't actually know the answer to this, but here's my take on it. Here's, here's let's look it up or let's Google it or let's read about it or something like that. I think that's, I think people are more res- responsive to that than when you have some sort of agenda where you're always going to be right and always have the upper hand. Um, I think it's also easy for us to be like the, maybe the parents in this story where maybe we get uh, uh, paralyzed by conflict or maybe aren't sure how to deal with others who think differently than us. A lot of uh, churches, a lot of faith communities are not open to questions or disagreements or thinking differently about different things. And to raise any sort of objection or question to things means, mm, you know, you're no longer part of the accepted group. And, you know, again, I get why the parents freeze. They're, they're forced into this impossible situation. And so I think this text calls us to be places where we don't always need to get along on everything or always see eye to eye on all issues or ideas. Uh, Yes, there needs to be a semblance of boundaries, uh, but I hope that we can be a place where disagreements can be worked through and sorted out. Um, I have here a theology textbook from my seminary days. It's as thick as a Bible, if not thicker. It's packed full of things and ideas that Christians do not agree on or see eye to eye on. That's why it's this thick. It'd be nice if it was one page. It ain't. It's really, really, really thick. And we could like take our pick, uh, talk about humanity, what God, God does, what is God like, the social dimension of sin, the work of the Holy Spirit, baptism. Like, There's all kinds of things in this book. Um, and if we were to sit down as a group and go through this thing page by page and talk about how we think about every single thing, we would quickly realize like, oh man, like we do not see eye to eye on a lot of this kind of stuff. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge that. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, you and your experiences and how you see and understand faith is not the sole arbitrator of everything. We often like think that like, hey, this conclusion and what I've come to and what I ha- have about this is how it is. And if you disagree with me, like you're wrong. And I think we need to like step away from that. There are people who love Jesus just as much as you, maybe even more who don't see eye to eye with you on matters of the faith. And like, we have to like learn to figure that out together. We have to figure out a way to do faith and church and community together. And so I think this leads then to the third major category of actors we see in the story. Uh, We see uh, that of the religious leaders uh, because they were the ones who made it an unsafe place. Uh, They were the one who put up very high gates to keep their faith pure and to keep everyone on the same page. Uh, They were the ones that were more concerned about spitting into some mud, like what day of the week that happened on, than the fact that someone had eyeballs that didn't work, and now their eyeballs work. Like, they were more concerned about the spitting, the fact that it was like a Sabbath, and like, this guy can now see. Like, where were their priorities? Um, They were the ones that ironically were the most blind in this story. And I think it's so crucial for us to be able to step back and to realize that we have our blind spots too. It's so important and crucial for us to be able to step back and realize like, hey, there are things in my life that I have blind spots on that I am wrong about as well. And again, when you look at the whole spectrum of faith, there are countless brothers and sisters in this world and our history who have very different ideas of what faith means, how this plays out, and like what it all means. 
And, and, and yes, for sure, there's bad and hurtful and harmful theology and practices. I don't want to say like you just do whatever you want and that, like you just do whatever actions you want. But our tendency is to take those boundaries and to push them closer and closer together. And when you encounter others who like don't see things your way, you just want to write them off. You want to push them outside or want nothing to do with them. And so I think there's this, you know, like there's this idea that we, we pick up our cross and we follow in the way of Jesus. And um, so we have this wooden cross. And I think what, what we tend to do as humans, we end up doing, um, morphing this cross into, into something different with this idea of just people not seeing like what we, what, what we do on things. And so we have this cross, and there's typically two things that we do with it. Um, we take this cross and we can either build a fence with it or we can build a table with it. That is to say that I think we can, we can um, build a fence or a wall and we keep ourselves inward and we keep others out, that we have it all figured out and we need to th- keep things safe and clean. That's kind of what the religious leaders in the story were doing. Or we can take that cross and we can build a table. And a table is a place where you invite others in who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't sound like us, who don't think like us. You invite them in and you like do life with them. You have a meal with them. You like, invite them into your life. I think that's like when Jesus says, pick, take, take, pick up your cross and follow me, we often end up building one of those two things, either a fence or a table. And again, there's a time for fences, but at the end of the day, I think that Jesus cared more about the table and inviting others in. And Jesus calls all of us out of our spiritual blindness to recognize our blind spots as we pursue what it means to love God and to love neighbor. I think that's what the story is calling us to do. And so let's go and forth and live that out. Thank you for listening to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in finding out more about our church, feel free to reach out to us at any time. Our contact information is provided at www.pbcob.org.